Welcome to Reliability Matters, a podcast for the electronic assembly industry. Each episode covers topics related to reliability, best practices, and environmentally responsible assembly techniques with insights from experts across the electronic assembly industry. Now, here's your host, Mike Conrad. And we are back. Thank you for joining me for yet another episode of the Reliability Matters podcast as we creep ever closer to episode 100. We're up there. I think this episode will be in the high 80s or something like that. I don't know the exact number at the time I'm recording this. but um, uh, And um, Happy New Year. Uh, by the time you see this, it'll be uh, very close to New Year. So Happy New Year as well. Uh, my guest today... Well, first of all, let me say I'm really, I'm really stoked about today's episode because I get to talk about one of my favorite subjects in the whole world, and that is uh, automo- automotive, uh, anything to do with automotive, the whole auto industry, and in particular, the, um, the electric auto industry, which is very exciting, and even more particular, the autonomous driving auto industry, if we ever get there. So I, I'm really excited to talk about that. And to bring in this conversation to make it real, um, I brought in uh, Brian O'Leary. Uh, he's from Indium Corporation. He's the global accounts manager. He's many things, but he's a global account manager, global head of e-mobility and infrastructure. Uh, Brian's responsible for promoting Indium Corporation's full range of products and services for e-mobility, which includes electric cars, you can see why I have them as my guest, trucks, charging stations, and more. Uh, Brian joined Indium Corporation in 2014 and has more than 20 years of experience in sales, marketing, and channel management in the electronics industry. Brian earned his master's degree in international management at Thunderbird School of Global Management. He also co-authored two books on thermal profiling called Profiling Guide for Profitability and Profiling Guide for Six Sigma. I should probably bring him back when we uh, next time we re- cover profiling. He sounds like he would be the perfect guest for that as well. Uh, we spoke with Brian from his office in Denver. Uh, I, I say Denver, Colorado. Is it Denver? Uh, Arvada, but close Arvada, enough. Arvada, yes. I, I'm very familiar with Arvada. We have some good friends that live in Arvada. Um, so you know how it's so funny. You know, Arvada is a big town. And even though... When you say Arvada, I just want to say our friends' names, see if you know them. But that, I mean, that's silly. That's that's just human nature. You know, where yeah. do you live? Los Angeles. Oh, I know Mary and Pete Townsend. Do you know them? Yeah. I mean, that's that's uh, it's just funny how that happens. So thanks for joining me, Brian. I appreciate it. I'm excited to talk about the auto industry, and I have a lot of opinions and questions, and I'm just fascinated by that by that entire industry. So uh, thanks for joining me today. Well, thank you. Yeah, of course. So one of my favorite subjects, as I have been going on about, um, is the electrification of automobiles, um, not just electric cars, uh, which are with us now, but completely autonomous vehicles. You know, when I was a kid, we were, I said this on another show, we were promised flying cars, you know, by the year 2000. When I read sports, not sports, um, see, I was the geeky kid. Instead of Sports Illustrated, I was I was reading Popular Mechanics and, and, and Popular Science and all that. But um, back in the 60s when I would get a hold of those magazines, um, uh, we were promised all these things you know, by the year 2000. That was kind of the, the benchmark when we would be in the future. And one of the things we were promised was you know, flying cars and, and self-driving cars and robots around the house, things like that. Um, and that didn't happen. A lot of the things happened. You know, we went to the moon, we have space stations and astronauts now, and that, now we're sending tourists up into space. You know, so we, we did get some of what was promised, um, if maybe a little late. Uh, but we didn't get our flying cars. But we were, it looks like we're starting to make up for it. Um, before we get into the future of automobiles, uh, let's talk about materials, because you're a ma- you, know, you work for a materials company primarily. Electronics have been around since well before I was born, you were born. Um, do electronic assemblies in automobiles require something different from the rest of the world? Are, you know, the auto industry, I believe the auto industry thinks they're special, or they're, they're unique, and they probably are in so many ways. Are the materials they need unique as well? Well, I'm in the space of, of soldering materials, and we still are mainly talking about no clean fluxes, still largely rosin-based, and for the alloy, it's, it's good old sack, uh, tin, silver, copper. But with electrification, EVs compared to internal combustion engines, they have longer mission profiles. 
And what I mean by that, in other words, EVs have higher demand or duty cycles. For example, when you fill your car up with gas, you know, you cut the engine. It's the opposite for an EV. It's on when you're receiving a charge and that, that could be several hours. So EVs also, when they're parked, they may be doing over the air updates and other communication. So what this all means is longer mission profiles can see more thermal cycling at higher operating temperatures. You got those extremes of both hot and cold and varying levels of, of vibration. So that may, in some cases, push the limits today of, of SAC. Yeah, exactly. Um, once a, an electric car leaves the factory, it's on and it stays on for the life of the car. And typical, uh, I know the auto, um, I read some stats about uh, the average age of, of automobiles right now is a little higher than normal. You know, that may be due to the pandemic and you can't actually buy a car right now uh, with all the shortages. I don't know what, what led to it, but, but uh, it, it might also have something to do with the fact that cars last longer. You know, reliability is probably at an all-time high. I remember cars from the 70s and American cars from the 70s. They were terrible. They were fast. They were cool, but they were terrible. Um, but now I would assume that the average lifespan of a car is about nine or 10 years. Maybe the auto industry probably targets it somewhere around there. Um, so that those devices are on for nine or 10 years, uh, to your point. Uh, that is a huge duty cycle. You know, the electronics in my car, uh, other than the alarm system, probably go to sleep every time I take, you know, I say take the key out, there are no keys anymore, but every time I, 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 I leave the vehicle and turn it off, I'm sure most of the electronics are off. And, and out of that nine-year um, uh, lifespan of a car, uh, I would imagine the average electronics run for about maybe a year and a half, you know, uh, considering how much time it's off, how much time it's on, maybe two or three years. But uh, you're right, there is a huge demand on the duty cycle. Um, we rely on IPC standards and other trade organizations uh, to provide guidelines for um, our, how we build our, our products, particularly in electronics. Um, the auto industry seems to embrace their own standards. They do seem in many ways to march to the beat of their own drummer, uh, for better or for worse. And they are a very unique industry. But then again, electrons don't, don't care what industry they're in. They follow the same rules. The physics of failure follow the same rules whether you're in a pacemaker or a Hasbro toy or, a, or an automobile, um, should there or should there or will be, will, will there be a kind of a harmonized standard? I know there's an automo uh, automotive um, uh, rev or, or, or version of some of the uh, IPC standards, um, but should there be more of a harmonization of IPC in the auto industry in terms of standards? Should we all be building boards the same way yeah, I mean, this This is a fair question. And let's be fair to IPC, which is made up of people like you and me in our industry, volunteering for the most part our time. Uh, even if standard committees were meeting more frequently than they are today, it would still be a challenge to keep up with the pace of this industry. And I'm talking specifically automotive and the subset of, of EV. But this doesn't, of course, lessen the need eventually for standards because as you know, the lack of standards can result in higher costs of manufacturing. Case in point, I'll make two points. The automotive industry has been using the same standard for SIR or surface insulation resistance for what, 30 years? Uh, this common testing procedure has, has worked fine, still works fine in many cases, but for automotive and specifically an EV, we've seen a lot of change just in the last few years. So the longer mission profiles we just talked about have resulted in what we at Indium are calling enhanced SIR, to which we have developed products to meet these unofficial, I guess you could call it, higher automotive standards. So let me, let me give a few brief examples. The current J standard 004B for SIR is uh, 100 microns, while the automotive industry is testing at 5,000. The current test is, I think it's like 168 hours, while industry is now testing at 1,000 hours. And the voltage back then was like 5 volts, and now it's 10, even 50 volts. So this is a case where automotive is developing their own standards, and frankly, they can't wait on, it, on IPC to come up with the standard. So they don't have a choice. Um, 
Another example that we deal with quite a bit at Indium is a voiding phenomenon re related to the soldering process. Our industry has struggled the last several years with an IPC spec on the books, but it only pertains to the case of ball grid array. So there are many new types of packages or components that did not exist when that standard was developed. But I have some good news to report. DKE, which is a German body of automotive manufacturers, has been qualifying, or I should say quantifying, both of these examples, as I just discussed. And in the case of voiding, they've been studying the impact of voiding on components like QFNs and its relationship with reliability. So their work is expected to be adopted by the IPC and frankly should be a relief to many of us who are building for automotive since acceptable voiding levels will be relaxed. As to the case of SIR, I hear the same German body has taken up the challenge and is engaged currently with IPC. So as a manufacturer, standards help us better, better uh, create products that solve real problems versus you know speculative ones and as an end user it avoids perhaps timely and costly testing and in many cases in the absence of the spec as you've seen overdoing it yeah i was just talking to a well-known expert the other day on the program and we go back and forth we me and my guests various guests go back and forth when we talk about voiding there was a time on the show where all we talked about was voiding it's like, can we talk about anything can we void the void that which is one of your company terms but can we avoid the void just just stop talking about it but um there are two very different trains of thought and people are in either firmly one camp or the other and one of those camps is uh voiding is a big issue we need to do everything we can to eliminate voiding go for zero voiding and the other is it's all to do about nothing you know, 30% right. voiding, so what? You can, a lot of parts can survive with 70%, 80% voiding. You know, you have a good intermetallic bond, enough to transfer enough heat and enough current. Uh, the part's not going to fall off if it hits a bump. You're fine. And, and then, you know, like I said, there are others that are just really concerned about any, any void. I, I don't know what we did before we started using x-ray machines, because before we started <laughs> using x-ray machines, there was no voiding. There was no concern. And now all of a sudden, we see something and we freak out. So it's, yeah, it would be good if they, um, it'd be good to know what it really should be rather than based on fear, have it based on science and data. And clearly we've been building bottom terminated components, particularly QFNs for so long now uh, that we probably have data on, on um, reliability uh, as it has to do with voiding. So uh, they can come up with either a relaxed number or a tighter number, but, it, but a number that's based on data rather than just a hypothesis. Exactly. Yep. So it's ironic that uh, when I look at the earliest cars made, you know, everyone thinks Henry Ford invented the car. No, no, no. There were cars before Henry Ford. Uh, Henry Ford popularized the car and, and came up with you know, efficient ways to make it. Henry Ford was the Steve Jobs back then. You know, he was able to take something and go, that's a great idea. I'm going to make it better and popularize it and make it for the masses. Um, but it's ironic that the, the earliest cars were electric cars. And you know, way before the internal combustion engine, you know, we, we had batteries and we were driving around the cities with, for the time, remarkable range and speed for the, for the, for the day. Um, and we can either credit or we can blame Henry Ford for popularizing the, what we call ICE, the internal combustion engine. Um, in, in your opinion, what is the motivation to return to the electric car? Kind of a back to the future kind of scenario here. A good question. I mean, most people don't realize, like you said, the electric cars have been around a long time, well over 100 years. The main reason gasoline engines dominated over EV is the better availability of liquid fuel. Comparably, the electrical infrastructure simply did not exist back then for EVs. And, you know, the rest is history. What is different now is the obvious motivation, climate change, which is driving policy. Europe has pretty hefty penalty on any piston engine manufactured today in Europe, and it is announced an all-out ban by 2035. In the UK, even earlier, 2030. China has banned by 2035 uh, all combustion engines. And for the US, the US federal government has not proclaimed a ban, but rather set targets with industry for half of all of the US vehicles to be EV by 2030. 
Also should note the federal fleet is targeted in the infrastructure bill. Any day it's going to be passed. And certainly by the time this, this podcast is uh, listened to, I'm sure it has. Lastly, you can't forget also U.S. states are ahead typically of the federal government. New York and California are aligned and with Europe and China on that 2035 cutover date. But I think equally important or more important is the consumer. Um, some of the new models of EVs are frankly just better vehicles than their piston counterparts. Take the Ford 150 Lightning. It's targeted as a, a contractor truck. But what is there not to love about a truck that a, a contractor can store all his power tools in that massive frunk, I love that word, frunk, or front trunk. Yes. It has 11 power outlets and massive battery that can charge an entire job site. And on their website, Ford breaks down the power available to meet the needs of everything from building a deck, masonry, framing a house, or I like this one, extreme tailgate party with a 20-foot projection TV, portable hot tub, HVAC fridge, and even blender. <laughs> Sounds like a party to me. But wait, we'll throw in a blender. Be the first to callers. <laughs> but, you know, we, we have clearly entered a, a new age in electrification. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was going to ask this question a little later, but you, this you kind of gave me a nice segue to it. We talk about... Uh, electric cars and reliability and, and all the cool new features and why wouldn't we you know, embrace electric cars. The average uh, internal combustion engine vehicle contains about 30,000 parts with about 2,000 of those parts considered moving parts. When we look at, at an electric vehicle, um, they contain uh, about 20 moving parts. And that's a huge difference you know, between 2,000 moving parts and 20 moving parts. So one would assume just general common sense logic that um, that would have a, pro a proportionate effect on reliability. What's, what's your take on that? Well, that's a good question. You know, fewer moving parts, less, less to go wrong, right? So let's keep in mind the auto industry has really refined the internal combustion engine. They've been at it a long time. And I like to use the Japanese automakers to make a good point. I don't think anyone will argue the likes of Toyota build some of the most reliable cars on the market. Now, I've owned several Japanese and American cars over the decades. And you know, the joke always was you get less frills and comfort, but you get quality. While American cars at the time, you know, had to be broken in. It took some fixes in the beginning, but then they run forever. Now, remember the phrase, remember the phrase, uh, never buy a first year GM car. Right? <laughs> Wait for the second. Wait for the second yeah, year. Right. If it's a brand new model, avoid the first year because you are right. the test. You are the test engineers, right? No, you're right. You're right. <laughs> Been there, done it. Yeah. So, but you know, things of course have changed, and and ironically though, you know, Tesla. Let's keep in mind, in the very beginning, was known for ship and fix later, but they deliver today a solid product. It sure shows with the recent announcement at the time of this recording, um, over a hundred thousand unit order from Hertz. So that speaks loads of confidence. Uh, but back to the Japanese, you know, no one is talking about great EVs out of Japan. Actually, quite the opposite. The Mazda MX-30, uh, just you look it up because it's, it's just scathing the reviews. Um, but now how, how about VW, or who's very aggressive in EV and makes an excellent product already? I mean, VD's, VW's approach is more get it right the first time and it's german engineering but their ceo and and again this is recent news just warned his board if you don't hurry up and pick up the pace we're going to lose thirty thousand factory jobs at vw so so what is my take i don't think we can really say one technology is more reliable than the other uh toyota and tesla representing both an ice or the internal combustion engine ev in my example both are rock solid in their category it comes down to manufacturing processes and in my world material selection for you you know it could be as simple as did they clean the board um you would think fewer moving parts means less to break but in place of mechanical mechanical parts you have more electronics you know this market research suggests that it could be two to three times more um, in the coming years. So you and I have been in this a long time and there's plenty that can go wrong with electronics. I think if we take a very big step back, my message to our industry is just remember this is automotive. 
a server board fails, maybe some kid playing video games somewhere is interrupted. In contrast, a key safety aspect of an EV is more than an inconvenience when it fails. Uh, as the EV market starts to shake out, and it will, and competition becomes more intense, there will be pressure on cost reductions, but let's not lose our heads. Um, some startups have very little experience in PCBA, and equally some of their PCBA houses that have been making, let's say, those server boards may not have experience with more stringent requirements in, in automotive. Um, and as suppliers with decades of experience in automotive and meeting high reliability requirements, we need to be good stewards in our industry. And, and it's a very exciting field, but I tell you, buckle up. It's going to be a bumpy ride. Yeah, you gave me a perfect segue to my next question. But before I get there, um, you know, comment on reliability. Yeah, uh, internal combustion engines are highly reliable. That's what happens when you build something and refine it over 100 years. You know, it, but it did take about 100 years to get to where we are now in terms of reliability. And if we look at the comparable reliability in electric cars, which have not been in continuous production for 100 years, uh, it, we're we're there. I mean, we're, we're pretty much on par, if not maybe a little bit better, um, overall reliability um, already. So that tells me that, that the days of, of having a good relationship with your mechanic down the road, um, you know, those days are probably going to be, you know, legacy days. You know, my, my 1968 Mustang is good friends with my mechanic, right? But, but my, um, my future electric car or whatever you know it turns out to be uh will probably you know it may never see a mechanic you know the the last tool it might see is on a on a factory line when it was made and it's it's probably fairly reasonable to think that that's the case unless i i hit something you know unless someone hits me then it might see a body shop but but um you know based on the the fewer number of moving parts if if the auto industry can uh, put boards together um well and and factor in all the you know the potential failures that could happen with the board based in harsh environments and and you know the actual working environment of an automobile uh, we may have a, a day when dealers you know tesla's selling cars they don't have a, a, a they don't have dealerships with maintenance bays you know they they sell out of out of malls and and online you know they they don't have that huge service infrastructure like like the uh, traditional auto industry has Speaking of Tesla, this is where you gave me an earlier segue. Um, Tesla's led the way for electric cars uh, in terms of popularizing electric cars. And, you know, Tesla's wildly considered to be, widely considered to be a tech company building automobiles. Um, the traditional car companies, um, Ford, GM, um, Stellantis, that's a name you taught me just the other day, uh, which is formerly Fiat Chrysler and a bazillion other brands now, um, Volvo, all the, all the, the legacy manufacturers, uh, they are mechanical companies or car companies incorporating electronics, right? So it's just coming from a different angle. Um, the Tesla, particularly in the earlier days of Tesla, it's still a young company, so that's not that long ago, but in the earlier days of, earlier days of Tesla, there were some, some fair criticisms over their fit and finish. The cars worked electrically. They, they, they went from A to B. They look cool. They go fast, et cetera. But the, the door seams didn't quite, you know, they weren't quite even. Uh, there was a, a little bit of a slip, kind of a shoddy manufacturing. And I think that came from the fact that they weren't auto manufacturers. They are, they're a tech company. They got the tech right. They got the tech so right. But they, it took them a little while to catch up to, you know, how to, how to put wheels and steering columns and, you know, whatever else, you know, suspension systems and, and all that together, body panels. Um, and I think the same can be said for the traditional companies. They have, they have mastered the art of putting 20,000 parts, you know, between four wheels. And they've done it very well. And the quality is just way better than it used to be um, you know, I think uh, American cars can compete very well with pretty much any brand any, from any country. Um, the, the, the gaps have, have narrowed. And uh, even low-priced uh, cars uh, still have quality. You know, it's not like the old, uh, um, what was that, uh, the Yugo. Remember the Yugo? You know, that sold for $39.95 and, 
And, uh, you know, the joke on that is they put uh, the only option you can get was uh, rear window defoggers. That way, when you're pushing your car, your hands don't get cold. <laughs> that, was, that was the joke on that car. But, but we've come a long way since the Yugo days. Um, so what's your take on that? Do you think that the legacy companies still have a lot to learn with tech? Uh, and do you think that the electric companies, that all these companies that are just coming out of nowhere, um, introducing electric cars, uh, that have not had experience building cars before, but maybe are pretty good tech companies, do you think they have a long way to go to learn the mechanics of it? That was a long question, but sorry no, about that's that. A, that's a really good question. It's really at the heart of this battle that we see between legacy and, and startups. So, you know, you really have two main camps and, and you identify them. You have the legacy autom automotive makers, sorry, and startups and the legacy automotive have been incorporating electronics into their vehicles for years with higher and higher sophistication, like an ADAS system, a lane and park assist, increasingly more intelligent infotainment systems. You know, this is not new for them. So it's, it's, you know, they, yes, they do very well on the mechanical, but many legacy manufacturers shed their in-house PCBA years ago when automotive, especially here in the United States was struggling. You know, we saw those spinoffs, the consolidation companies go under as tier ones became largely the PCBA houses and system integrators for, for these legacy automotive. And legacy gave up some control, but got stable supply chain in return. Now, fast forward to today, this model is absolutely being turned on its head with EVs. As the barrier of entries are much lower, many startups not going to, to normally more experienced tier ones, but rather to EMSs for their builds. Uh, the complete system integration, largely mechanical, is giving away to more electronics space. So where does this leave the legacy manufacturers? Well, for one, VW and GM have both very publicly stated that they have target dates to outsell Tesla. <laughs> um, I laugh, but I mean, that is a hell of a target. Meanwhile, I see today legacy is still leaning heavily on tier ones while startups more in EMS. So what does this mean? The cost structure for both could not be more different. On the OEM side, Tesla just reported, and again, this is, we're, we're in the month of October, Tesla just reported a 28% gross margin on sales. I mean, legacy automotive is probably terrified. Um, yeah. Compare this to VW at 20% and Ford at 13%. On the supply side, tier ones that are largely utilized by legacy are making, what, 16, 18% margin, while EMS favored by startups continue to operate at those razor thin margins we all know so well. Now, throw China into the mix. And that is leading the world, I mean, China is leading the world in EV manufacturing cost to consumers in China is tumbling. It's an EV is about half of what it cost just a few years ago in the Chinese market. And this is largely in due in part to their lower cost supply chain. M meanwhile, EVs in the Americas and Europe, are they getting cheaper? Nope, they're getting much more expensive. And, and this is nuts. You know, writing is on the wall. Western markets are in for a big shock when quality Chinese EVs that consumers want and will buy start to flood their markets and with EVs that compete in the mid to low end of the market. So the, the consumer is likely not going to be a gearhead. I think that's you and me or earlier adopters, but rather, you know, ones that just want to get from point A to point B. But Western manufacturers are pivoting by investing directly in new brands like Wuling that I'm sure many of your listeners maybe not heard of. Wuling that makes a cheap city EV has been the number one seller globally for several months. I mean, in total units sold. And their major backer is General Motors. Uh, meanwhile, BYD, that has Warren Buffett as a major backer, is neck and neck with Tesla in sales in China. And again, in terms of units sold. So I, I think legacy automotive is learning from the likes of Tesla. They frankly have to adapt or they'll have a very hard time competing. Um, I think it is interesting, the keynote speaker of the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas, probably at the time of this recording, 
is the CEO of GM, and GM will be showing off for the first time their electric version of the popular Bronco on the show floor. So I'll I'll be there. Yeah, that that's going to be very interesting. I think this is not uh, part of our prepared questions, but I I think the auto industry really ought to be concerned for a lot of reasons because as millennials and whoever is taking over the millennial slot um, become of age and and start. Um, making major purchases. Uh, they're not really car people, you know, and you and I probably share a lot of, of, of um, uh, commonality in, in terms of we're kind of motorheads. You know, we, I think this country, the United States had a particular love relationship with automobiles uh, more so than maybe some other countries because we built giant interstates, you know, in the fifties, we expanded out in the sixties, we expanded out. We became a very car centric culture and the nature of, our country, you know, with 3,000 miles uh, between coasts is, you know, you gotta, you gotta drive. And, you know, we didn't, we don't really have, with some exception, we don't really have um, mass transportation infrastructure everywhere, like many other countries do. You know, we just started with automobiles and we kept automobiles and it just became sewn into the American fabric. And uh, the car you drive says who you are to a lot of people. And some people, live in, you know, a, a cardboard box, but, but, but driver Mercedes, you know, they put all their money into their car because the car is their identity. As, as things change, as uh, cars become more um, electrified and autonomous, and they, they may become the next version of widely distributed mass transportation. I think, I think there's a possibility we could head to Everyone has access to a ride, whether they own it or it's a lease service or, or whatever. And, you know, you basically just go on your phone and you say, I need to be at this address at 9 a.m. tomorrow. And because every automobile now talks to each other and all the intersections are smart intersections, it basically will deliver the equivalent of a flight plan um, and the car will arrive at your house at a, at a certain time and you will get there at exactly that time because it's collated all that information with every other vehicle on the road. And then I think we may lose that identity. I think, you know, I don't think I'm special if I'm on a United Airlines airplane versus a Delta airplane versus an American Airlines airplane. You know, it's just, it's just a means to an end. You know, where I sit in the cabin might make me feel special, but the box I'm in doesn't make me feel special. And I, that may happen in the auto industry too, at some point, it may become, you know, a, an airline on wheels and, you know, it's just a service that takes you there instead of pilots, it's computers. And if that happens, that could, that could definitely affect, you know, how the auto industry markets to consumers. Does that ever landed on you? Do you ever think about, you know, how long people will pick a $200,000 car over a $20,000 car both of which are just as reliable, both of which take you from A to B in the same period of time, one that makes you feel good and look good. You know, is that going to go away? Well, I think and you make a very salient point. There, there are some people that a car is just transportation and, and that's it. Um, so as far as an identity, yeah, sure. You'd, you'd like to have a nice vehicle, but it's really getting from point A to point B, especially those urban dwellers. Um, you know, take New York City, for example, and parking is just obscenely expensive. Owning a car is just not practical unless you're super wealthy. So, but um, to your point of like the millennials, uh, you know, lower, lower uh, price points. I mean, that that's absolutely coming. You see that trend already. Um, but to having vehicles show up at your house, maybe fully autonomous, um, that is being discussed in boardrooms. And I, I don't remember exactly offhand which partners are with whom, but it, it might be a Ford or a GM partnered with Uber or Lyft. I can't remember exactly, but they have talked about that the, the type of sales are not so much going to be consumer in the future, but are going to be fleet sales. Mm -hmm. So these are going to be fleet for hire, that type of thing. And in the terms of electrification, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, aside from the autonomy point, because if you have a fleet, one of the things that fleets do is they come home every night or they, they have periods of time like rental cars where they're back in the bay. 
So from an infrastructure charging standpoint, you know, these fleets can always be ready to go 100%. It's kind of like the, the scooters right now, the electric scooters you see in downtown San Diego and, and other uh, cities. Before you hop on, it tells you how much power you got left. You know, you're going to be able to do the same kind of thing. You know, I want a car that's fully charged, or maybe I can get one that's cheaper that's half charged and I need it for a shorter period of time. And there's going to be a lot of possibilities. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited to see how it comes. I wish I was younger so I, I could... <laughs> see where it's going it's it's very you're exciting. going for the flying car <laughs> i'm waiting for my flying car i am i i i do fly airplanes but i want a car that flies you know so um we talked about we touched on on reliability and and just to kind of put a bow on that subject the the um the reliance now you you had touched on this earlier that uh, it used to be electronics and cars were largely infotainment you know they were gadgets uh and if they failed yeah, it's kind of irritating, but it's not deadly. Uh, now with ADAS systems, and look at my car. You know, I have I have two cars. I have a twenty eighteen, you know, GM product with all the bells and whistles, uh, uh, all the safety systems, uh, it, uh, adaptive cruise control, blind spot indicators, um, lane centering. It actually will grab. It's quite startling when it happens because it just grabs your steering wheel and moves you back into the center of the lane. Um, rear collision avoidance systems, front collision avoidance systems, all, all that stuff. And I consider myself to be a really good driver. I was a motorhead when I was a kid. The best day of my life, besides the day I got married and had, had our, our daughter, uh, was the day I got my driver's license. You know, that, that was right up there, right? And, um, and I, I, I consider myself a good driver after all these years on the road. And now, today... I don't think I'm quite as good a driver. I think I let some of my skills dull a little bit because I rely on these features. When I first got my, when I got my first car with um, adaptive cruise control, which keeps a distance from the car in front of you, uh, I would hover my foot over the brake, just ready to take over when the system failed, which it never has. When I would change lanes on the freeway, I would look over my shoulder and look at my blind spot indicator just to make sure it was seeing what I was seeing. And it's never let me down. Um, I, now I find when I'm driving on the freeway and stop and go traffic and my adaptive cruise control is on, my foot doesn't hover over the brake. I don't look over my shoulder anymore like I used to because I trust the systems. If any of those systems just stop working, I'm I'm a bit more in peril because I've, I'm not relying on that. That's a huge problem in the aviation industry. Um, they they you know pilots kind of stop flying the plane. They rely on technology. And and there was a recent example in San Francisco where an Asiana plane crashed and there was nothing broken on the plane. They had three qualified pilots in the in the cockpit. And the reason it crashed short of the runway uh, was because uh, someone didn't realize the auto throttle was turned off. They thought the auto throttle was turned on. They they stopped flying the plane. You know and there's nothing wrong with the plane. It did what it was told to do, and in that case, to, to crash. So I think that can happen in cars. So I, I think that makes the reliability requirement for electronics in the auto industry life or death. It is very high. It's no longer that you can't get satellite radio if your electronics fail. Now you could die uh, or you could hurt property, things like that. Um, and in, if you compare that to aviation, aviation went through the same model. You know, they started um, electrifying their cockpits, making glass cockpits and all that. But the difference between aviation and, and automotive is aviation has the same type of computers, you know, built for harsh environment, built for reliability. But they usually have three, one primary, two backups. You know, the same with hydraulic lines and all that. Um, cars don't have that. We don't, we don't have the budget in cars to have, you know, one primary and three backup or two backup computers. So, um, I'm sure this has fallen, not fallen on deaf ears in, for the automotive industry. Um, but, um, what are they doing? We touched on it a little bit, so we don't have to go very far down that rabbit hole, but what's the auto industry doing to grapple with the exceptionally high reliability expectations and you mentioned all, already that you know the duty cycles are extremely long, which just complicates matters more. But um, what, what are they doing to address that, to, to make the electronics fail safe, as fail safe as possible? Well, you, you mentioned uh, 
you might mentioned uh, autonomy. Um, you know, some of the boards we see this with with Tesla. I don't think it's it's any uh, uh, secret that the AI system that they've been building or working on, which is currently at a, a level two, is a very densely populated board. There's a lot going on. Uh, with the chipsets, and they do similar to you made the example of uh, um, aerospace having you know one primary with two backups. At least on their AI boards or their autonomous boards, they have two of everything. And my understanding is that any kind of uh, correction or navigation in the real world, you've got one system doing computations, while you have a secondary system doing the same computations. And if they don't agree, it starts over. Um, I'm no expert in, in autonomy, but it is definitely a game changer uh, to your point in terms of reliability. In, in this case, you're not going to rely on one system to, to drive your car. So the guy that doesn't put his foot any longer on the brake, you got to have some fail safes. Um, but, you know, autonomy, and I don't know if you want to get into this uh, because I know right now in your questions, but, you know, autonomy was one of the main, main topics. Uh, of this discussion. I think maybe this is a good segue. Yes, it's a perfect segue. Um, the, I, I believe that autonomous vehicles, truly autonomous vehicles, are really only possible when all vehicles are autonomous. I think one of the yep. problems that AI has, as good as AI is, uh, is predicting what humans will do because we are very unpredictable. We defy logic. You would have to build in an illogical model in order to understand humans. Uh, we have things like road rage. We have things like impaired driving. Um, texting. All texting, yeah. We have all sorts, of, all sorts of issues when it comes to human drivers. Right. I call those you know, stupid human tricks. I think if, if every vehicle through 5G or whatever comes next can communicate with each other in real time, um, the aircraft, the aviation industry does that right now too. When there's a collision, uh, was that TCAS? When there's a collision imminent, um, you know, one plane gets a directive to go, you know, down and to the left and the other plane gets a directive to go up and to the right or to, to their left, I guess. And, and basically it happens like that and they're given exact instructions what to do. I think if, if all the automobiles were connected and, not just in where they are, but where they're going and, and the speed and all of that stuff, then everything can be autonomous. It would be extremely safe. The only danger of an accident is if, yeah, if, if a brick falls off a building or, or an equipment issue. So what's your thought about fully autonomous vehicles? Where are we on that? Well, I think, I think safety is always going to have to trump a popular technology. Uh, and, in you know, there are people who are, are, I don't know, Tesla fanatics, <laughs> I shouldn't say that term, but it's true. I mean, they, they're whatever goes, let's try it. Let's do it. Let's, you know, forget regulation, forget everything else. We believe in the technology. Um, I think the answer is just as much human behavioral question as technological. You know, most accidents we see reported in the news in the context of autonomy is due to human behavior. To be specific, it's the overconfidence and technology and you have a crash and you, you queued that up pretty well. You know, you've gotten more relaxed and you trust the system and you talked about aircraft. That's great. I mean, look at autopilot. It's been used in aircraft for example, more than a century, but you still have pilots in the cockpit and all takeoffs to this day are still manual. Um, Tesla has gotten a bad rap. And they've had over a dozen crashes into emergency and work crews, you know, despite the, the flashing lights when the semi-autonomous feature was engaged. Um, you know, mind you, Tesla's system right now is only a two out of a five stage progression to full autonomy. Stage two, as defined by the SAE, says that a car can act autonomous autonomously but requires the driver to monitor the driving at all times and be prepared be prepared to take control at a moment's notice that's what they yeah. that's what they don't do <laughs> you're right yeah it's like come on really many of these 
reported crashes, the driver was distracted. You know, one driver of a fatal accident was even playing video games on his phone. I mean, Tesla is still a two. And Elon is saying in less than two months, time of this recording, it will be a five. I mean, that's full autonomy. Nobody's in the car. I mention this because it sets an expectation of overconfidence in the technology. Now, up to this point, there has been little regulatory oversight, but this is now changing. The Biden administration just announced it's put an expert at the helm of autonomy at the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, Missy Cummings. She ran a lab on autonomy at Duke well before Tesla was even around. And some of your listeners might recognize her name. She's the first woman fired fighter pilot. Oh, wow. So, yeah. And, and yeah. actually Cummings has a, that's a legacy name in the auto industry. You know, there's a the engine, you know, <laughs> Cummings yeah. diesel, right? I mean, that's a, probably right, not, right. not related, but at least it's a legacy name. But, you know, to answer, answer your question, I think the answer is yes. You know, the technology someday will be here, not as, quick, as quickly as many of us would like it to come, but you can't change people from being bad actors. So I think technology will be part of what addresses, as you say, irrational behavior. Uh, what that looks like, you know, who knows? You know, maybe like the pandemic, you may be able to choose if you want to participate or not but it's gonna come at a cost. I mean, maybe there will be stage five only roads or lanes on the highway. The new HOV lane of the future is the autonomous lane. And those that choose to pilot, drive their own vehicle are denied access. And we'll have to just, you know, leave, leave work a little earlier. You know, studies have already shown vehicles can travel faster, closer together, avoid that you see it in California all that time, all the time, that rippling effect, somebody taps on their brakes and it's yeah. like, boom, 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 boom. Yep. And at the very end of the column, you come to a complete stop. Yep. You know, autonomy is going to help with that. And I'm sure, you know, you live this all the time and I'm looking forward to it, but autonomy opens a whole new way of mobility. But to answer your question might require a physical separation of human and machines. Yeah, I, I definitely think it will. I, I see it a, a day probably not my lifetime, but certainly my grandkids' lifetime, when you know, they, they may not actually physically drive a car. They may have to, if they want to know what it was like for their papa and their gan to drive a car, they might go to a car driving experience on a road, a racetrack and, and get <laughs> to press an accelerator pedal and a brake and have to take some training to understand how to do that and say, this is how they used to drive. They used to have to turn a wheel and push these levers with their feet. And I have a feeling that the next generation of young people that grow up to get their licenses won't get their license. They'll just be able to summon a ride or, you know, it'll be, an, like I said earlier, an app on a phone. Just where do my, you want to be? My, when, when do you want to be there? It's already happening. I've got kids in that one, you know, that age of 15, 16, where you can start to drive. I couldn't wait till I got to that age. What was it, 15 and a half? Oh my yeah. God, I can get my license. Right. They care less. It's like, come on, you, you got to help me out with doing stuff for grandma. Get your license. And I was like, eh. <laughs> it's a lost, it's a lost love. I'll tell you, it's definitely a lost love. My last question uh, before we wrap up, it's kind of a long question, but 113 years ago, Ford uh, released its Model T. Over the past 113 years, we've built the required infrastructure uh, to support the internal combustion engine, including gas stations, service stations, dealerships, you know, all across the country. This made it possible to build interstate highways, uh, and that connected vast parts of our country. And in most of the country, we're no more than a few miles away from a gas station, for the most part. Um, I drive a very large SUV with like a 28-gallon tank, and an even... Uh, uh, and it has about a 600 mile range on the highway. It probably has 400 in the city, but it has about 600 on the highway. Uh, and I, I can never fill it these days because my credit card maxes out at a hundred dollars and I have to, the, the um, ADD in me has to put it in twice because I need to see it full. But uh, I don't even know what it's like to fill a tank these days. But um, it, that makes it possible to make long journeys anywhere in this country and not have to worry about running out of gas because if, with a, even a two or 300 mile range, I'm within the range of any gas station anywhere in the country, you know, depending upon where I am. Um, if we're going to transition to electric vehicles, it seems like one of the biggest 
hurdles is battery life and uh, recharging options. If you're in the city, you know, I, I, the city I live in has a couple of Tesla charging stations and local strip malls. You know, there's 15 or 20 high-powered charging stations. Um, and, and there's other types around. But once you get out of the city, once you're in the boondocks, there's no charging stations, or at least not a lot. And I don't know if you can drive relying solely on public charging stations. I'm not sure if you could drive an electric vehicle from one end of the country to the other in every, every road um, like you could in a, a nice car um, because I don't know if there are public charging stations within 200 miles of each other or whatever the range is on your car. Uh, do you see a day in our future when traditional gas stations will take over that? That that for a while they'll be they'll be selling uh, you know premium gasoline, diesel, and electric. Right, right. I mean, it's already happening. Um, the future is here. Convenience stores like Seven Eleven have already begun to install DC fast chargers, uh, and they're reporting that there's going to be 500 of them by the end of 2022. And Lucid Air, I mean, they were just in the news uh, in the month of September with their new EV uh, at hitting an EPA range of 520 miles on a single charge. I mean, the biggest part of Lucid's story that was largely lost, this insane range, it was very much not due to the battery, rather it was the efficiency of all the other systems in the build. So yes, you're going to pay a premium for 520 miles with a Lucid Air, and but they have proven it can be done and let's face it, Few of us drive 500 miles in a day. There are some, yes, but the average American driver drives about 40 miles per day, um, according to the Department of Transportation. So your home charger in your garage, for the most part, will be sufficient. The challenge, though, is competing with the ubiquity or the convenience factor of a gas station versus a charging network. Um, you know, our liquid fuel infrastructure has had decades to build. Infrastructure for EV has only had a few years to get it done. But, you know, here's an example of today and an example of the future. So let's say you run out of juice and it's not like running out of fuel. Today, you run out of fuel, plan on walking, you know, with your red can or, or calling a friend. You run out of juice, and this is not so far off into the future. Another bi-directional, and that's bi-directional means you can give power out mm -hmm. rather than just receive, you can give. Or a, a bi-directional EV or bi-directional tow truck could stop by and give you a jump. And your navigation will reserve and direct you to the next closest DC fast charging station. You know, maybe one with a lounge, check your emails, sip on your latte, you know, while you fully charge and explain to your boss why you missed your meeting. Um, the re reality, the reality is a world of EVs will require a change in behavior, especially these early years. It's, it's going to be messy. I think particularly messy for those EVs that don't have dedicated networks of uh, DC fast chargers like what Tesla has built. Um, industry circles today is reporting that in the market, like the US and UK, you are lucky if half on any given day, public chargers are working half. <laughs> so most of the issues, if you can believe it, have to do with networking of the payment system. I mean, it's the card reader that's down mm. kind of ridiculous in this day of age. Um, there's still a, a lot to sort out, but bottom line. An EV user will need to think about how and where you're going to charge. But like any anything, new habits, new habits take time to form and we will transition. And it's, it's going to be funny in the future. It's going to be like the horse and buggy to the horseless carriage. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there are more questions, but we're, we're just about out of time. And this was supposed to be my last question, but I always ask two or three last questions. So let me just throw one more in there for good measure. Um, Let's talk about scale just real quickly. Uh, I live in California, and, and during the height of our summer months, uh, they'll do these flex, I think they call them flex alerts or something, where you can sign up to get a discount on your electric bill if you agree to allow the electric company to turn off your air conditioners when needed. And you know, they promise not to do it every day. They promise to do it only you know, on a rotating basis. And it, it, the idea is that they'll, they'll turn off several thousand people's you know, high draw, high amperage draw, high amperage draw devices, uh, and that avoids having to do blackouts, right? 
Um, and they get a discount all year long for being turned off two or three times a year. I, with that in mind, if we all went to electric cars tomorrow and we all came home at six o'clock, plugged our cars into the charger, I mean, we would crash our grid. If everyone in California, 20 million plus people, just decided to plug yep. their cars in. How, how, how do we handle scale? I, I know um, um, Europe has claimed that they're going to, whether they do it or not, we'll see, but you know, by 2035 or whatever, it's gonna be all electric. You know, they have the same problem with generating electricity. Germany has a, a big issue because they've gotten rid of, I think, all their nuclear power plants and, and they're committed to uh, renewable energy, which is a great commitment, but challenging. Um, what's gonna happen when we all switch over and plug our cars into the outlet? We're gonna have a great world blackout. Right, uh, I'm, I'm glad you asked this question. I, I personally find this challenge the most interesting since there's still no clear solution. Um, consider just over this weekend, the Washington Post ran an article on how climate change is leading to massive failures already in our fragile grid. Last year, the average American home endured more than eight hours without power. Uh, and this is according to the U.S. Energy Information Administration. So that's more than double the outage time from five years ago. I, too, lived in California back in the day that Gray Davis was in. He was recalled as governor over brownouts. That's right. You know, I also grew up in uh, upstate New York. And I'll tell you, when the wind blows too hard or you have something like an ice storm, power could be out for days. And these are just two states and combined are over a quarter of our GDP. And their infrastructure, frankly, is not that great. Um, both also, though, have very ambitious electrification targets. You know, do I think they'll keep up? No one thinks we are ready. So it's, it's going to be a bumpy road. But, you know, what is the answer? For one, DC fast charging is a must. Right now, most people who own an EV are fairly affluent. You know, if you can afford a 50, 60, $70,000 plus EV, and the demographic is often a homeowner with a garage where you can install easily a, a stage one or stage two charger. It, it's, it uses your existing infrastructure. But if you live in the city or a multi-home dwelling like I do, an urban environment, home hookup is not possible. So, you know, having access to a stage three charger, and that's that DC charger, it's usually 300 volts or more, can get me charged and going and I can, you know, hit the convenience store for a cup of coffee and, and fire off some text while I do it. But to your point, peak demand is a real concern, but there are plenty of potential solutions. One is purely regulatory, as you mentioned, charge more during peak incentive and incentives like here in the state of Colorado to charge only off peak. Another solution is the bi-directional technology I had mentioned earlier. This will allow you to charge from the grid, but also give back a charge when not needed. And many EV car makers like VW sell all of their models now with bi-directional charging. And the German government, for example, is, is seriously envisioning using millions of parked EV batteries that are in the car, not being used as a way to better balance the grid. And here in the US, um, and this is interesting, you know, we're, we're kind of unique in, in many countries in the sense we have fleets of school buses and mm -hmm. they're, they're kind of a no brainer, low hanging fruit for electrification, um, having huge batteries. They mostly sit around all day doing nothing. And these buses have the potential to act as a, like a microgrid, um, powering small communities in times of like an ener energy Detress, distress, excuse me, you know, like um, an ice storm in upstate New York. I could even see schools uh, using this as a potential revenue source. I mean, let's get imaginative, you know, forget selling that crap to kids and vending machines to raise funds, make money off of selling power back to the grid. I mean, it's a cool time we live in. Yeah, that, that's an interesting concept because right now, you know, the, one, of the, one of the challenges with a power grid is they can't store electricity. They have to make it and use it at the same time. So it is a very fine balance between under overproduction. Um, you know, it's, it's, think about a supply chain issue where you had to make it at the exact time the consumer needed it. I mean, that is way more than just in time, right? That is just 
you couldn't do that. But in the electric world, that's what happens. But if you're right, if everyone had a battery at home in, in a car or a battery wall or whatever the case may be, um, then they, can, they could overproduce a little bit when conditions are right and, um, and then rely on some of that stored power for the shared grid uh, when a power plant has to go down for maintenance or, or a tornado you know, took out some wires or whatever the case may be. Yeah, that's an interesting proposition. And then you buy electricity and sell electricity. It becomes a, a tradable I mean, quantity. We've already done it with solar. I mean, it, it, it exists. These models exist today. And I, personally, I'm very excited about energy storage. You know, many of these lithium ion batteries uh, are going to need to be replaced in EVs. I mean, they, I think the average life expectancy is about 10 years, but many of these vehicles are going to go on beyond 10 years. So they're going to get a new battery pack, but you can find a second life for these batteries in energy storage that don't have that, you know, requirements of having a full charge, which results, you know, directly equates to range. It's a battery storage unit. So you could use batteries that are, are not as, you know, have as high as a um, capacity. Sure. But, you know, the other part is uh, lithium ion is no longer the only game in town. I mean, uh, LFP or the older lithium iron phosphate technology has seen some remarkable improvements and even Tesla is starting to use them. Um, today, they are already super cheap to produce. And what this means for energy storage technology, most likely you're going to see like ocean container like modules or bricks um, that will complement a DC fast charging station. It'll be sitting right next to it. And it will be, you know, storing that energy off peak and it will deliver it, you know, at peak from storage rather than directly from the grid. So what is also exciting about energy storage and, and it complements, you know, renewables like solar and wind. And one of the things not really talked about right now is how EVs today are still getting most of their power from dinosaurs. I mean, it's fossil fuel generation. Coal, coal, coal or natural gas power plants. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So. And I think as, you know, as consumers and, and policy demands a shift to renewables, I mean, it's going to come around. There's going to be a lot of pressure for providers. And, and here in the United States, there's over 2,000 power providers, and a lot of them are pretty antiquated. And they're going to have to prove that the source of energy is coming from renewables. Well, having something hooked up to an uh, energy storage unit, it just makes it a bit easier. Yeah. Well, we live in a very exciting time. Um, I... I I want to live to, to be 200 years old so I can see what's happening. I'm so curious. We're almost there. I feel like we are almost there to my flying car promise. Um, maybe not literally flying, but certainly flying down the road on clean, renewable energy. Um, I, I think that's uh, such an exciting promise. And the automation side of, of the automotive industry is just really exciting, to me, quite exciting, even though if given the choice, I will always drive versus be driven. But, but it is nice to be able to take your hands off for a while and, and you know, read a paper or whatever, whatever it is you want to do safely. Um, and I, I think you're, we are almost there. We are almost there. Well, and, and I do appreciate everything Tesla's doing. They are, man, they're rule breakers. They're, they're, they're the proverbial bull in a china shop. And they are clearing a path for the legacy car makers to follow. And you know, I don't know if Tesla will still be here you know, 20 years from now or if they're just clearing the path, if they're the icebreaker and, and the rest will take over and dominate. I, I don't know. But I know um, I appreciate what they're doing, even though they're definitely on the leading edge. When you're leading edge, you're going you're gonna to make some mistakes and, and everyone will be better off for it. Um, but it's just an interesting time right now. Brian, um, I, I really appreciate you being here. Thanks for all your wisdom and your knowledge in this business. I would love to sit down over a beer or two and talk about cars in a, you know, in a better environment than just looking at pixels and tiny little screens. But um, I appreciate you being my guest. All right. Thank you. And thanks for having me. My pleasure.
Thanks for listening or watching the Reliability Matters podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app, such as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and so many more. Also, be sure to check out my other podcasts, including the Concept to Creation podcast, where I feature conversations with entrepreneurs within the electronic assembly space, and the Innovations and Technology podcast, where we discuss innovative products within our industry. All three shows are also available in video format. Check out the Reliability Matters or Concept to Creation or Innovations in Technology podcasts on YouTube. Just search the show's name and you can find all three shows. Or go to MikeConrad.com. That's Conrad with a K. All three shows also appear there. Again, thanks for being part of my podcast family. I appreciate you being here. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay happy. And of course, keep doing it right. See you again soon. Thanks for listening to the Reliability Matters podcast. Join us on the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for new episodes of Reliability Matters.